And welcome once again to Father Spitzer's Universe at the intersection where faith and reason meet up. I'm Doug Keck coming to you from the mothership in Irondale, Alabama, where it all began in 1981. And of course, Mother's 100th birthday was just celebrated a couple of weeks ago by all the wonderful staff here at EW10 to some great people. Uh, Philip Golden, who I was just talking to in the hall, and uh, Fred, our wonderful director uh, as well. Uh, and Jody Copeland, so many people still here from the early days of EWTN. But you can email your questions to spitzersuniverse at EWTN.com so that we have something to ask Father Spitzer. And check out all of Father Spitzer's website, themagiscenter.com and purposefuluniverse.com and spitzercenter.org. And of course, Father Spitzer's Universe, as I always mention, is available on our YouTube channel and our on-demand channel page. And did you know that EW10 Radio also has on-demand programs? You can listen to your favorite programs like Call to Communion and Catholic Connection. Of course, Mother Angelica Answering the Call, which I do with Father Joseph. It's available 24 hours a day for free and on-demand. And did I mention it's free and on-demand? So check that out. And our topic, the Holy Eucharist from Father's book, Escape from Evil's Darkness. Boy, we can use it now. New book of the month for May, Simple Steps to a Stronger Marriage by the one and only Dr. Ray Garendi. Simple steps to a stronger marriage. He turns them out and they're all good. With that, we turn to another person who churns out those books and they're all good. It's our own Father Spitzer. How are you? I'm doing great. How about yourself? Very, very good. If you want to kick things off with a prayer, sure. that'd be great. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your many blessings to us, the blessing especially of this ministry and our capacity to serve in it. I ask you to bless Doug, our whole audience, myself, and uh, all those uh, uh, who participate in this production uh, so that everything that we do and say will be inspired, protected, and guided to perfection in your will through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. And Mary, seat of wisdom, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. Great to see you, Father. And I wanted to mention the name I was mentioning before was Fred Williams. And uh, Fred's been here a long time, too, and he directs a lot of our programs. Oh, so yeah. He, uh, so you remember Fred. I wanted to make sure his name got I in there, I remember Fred very well from about at least eight or nine other uh, right. productions I've done with him. So uh, Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. EW, Mother had a lot of loyal employees, I can say, say that for her. Absolutely. Uh, here's a couple of stories in the news I wanted to pass by you. Uh, I thought this was interesting, that, the, and I'm not sure if maybe uh, the status of this has changed, but at least when the story came out, that the Wisconsin Supreme Court will review a case in which a state panel determined that the Catholic Charities Bureau in Superior, Wisconsin, and its subsidiaries aren't, quote-unquote, religious enough to opt out of the state's unemployment insurance program. Apparently... Um, the Catholic Charities Group wanted to stop paying into the state program so that they could join the Wisconsin Catholic Churches program, which they claim is more efficient and cost-effective for the organization. The Bishop James Powers of the Diocese Superior said in a statement that the state's board ruling is an error because serving all uh, people is part of a religious imperative. And goes on to say, one of the people working there says, that the state is trying to punish Catholic Charities for the way it has organized itself by choosing to serve all those in need 
by choosing to organize as a separate charity instead of servicing as just part of the local Catholic diocese. So it's interesting, too, because many Catholic organizations, good Catholic organizations, get funding as well from government organizations. So it's interesting that we're starting right. to see pressure being put by the government in various states, let alone the federal government, as we saw before with Obamacare. Oh, yeah. Well, of course, the church has always done this from its inception. They, um, if you look at, you know, public education or uh, health care especially, uh, and of course welfare for the poor, the church was at it from the very moment of its inception, uh, you know, 20 years after the resurrection of Jesus, uh, there was already a huge movement to educate even the slaves, uh, to provide uh, social welfare, to provide, um, you know, uh, health care uh, to those who were in the, the most dire need of that care. And so, um, you know, today I don't have to keep saying that the Catholic Church is by far the biggest health care um, institution in the world with 26 percent of all health care being done by some organization under the oversight of the Catholic Church that uh, we have somewhere in the neighborhood of uh, almost 10,000 uh, elementary schools and almost 5,000 um, uh, high schools, secondary mm -hmm. schools, 1,700 universities uh, worldwide, and of course you look at the uh, welfare system, you know, from everything from literally from orphanages uh, to, um, you know, public assistance centers to uh, places that uh, help um, mothers, mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, uh, unwed mothers, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, there's just literally thousands upon thousands upon thousands of public welfare institutions associated with the Catholic Church. So, I mean, um, it's uh, it's been part of what we do. Catholic Charities, of course, is a huge part of it, but there's uh, many, many other um, uh, groups uh, internationally that are Catholic groups that serve everybody and do not uh, serve Catholics alone. And so, um, you know, Catholic Charities deserves to be able to go wherever they want and to serve whomever right. they believe needs to be served as Christ dictated. Right, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, next up, uh, kind of a, a follow-up to a discussion we had a couple of weeks ago in one of the surveys that came out. This one by a Springtime Research Institute came out a couple of weeks ago. Uh, it said that about one-third of 18 to 25-year-olds say they believe more than doubt the existence of a higher power, up from about one-quarter in uh, 2021. So you've gone from about 25% to 33% at least saying that they think there is some higher power. Uh, young adults, theologians, and church leaders attribute the increase in part to the need for people to believe in something beyond themselves after three years of loss with the whole COVID thing. Uh, one, somebody from the Princeton Theological Seminary said, we're, we're seeing an openness to the transcendence among young people that we haven't seen for a while. And another person says that a belief in God or a higher power doesn't necessarily transcend the church attendance or religious affiliation, but at least there's some sense of thinking about a higher power. Your thoughts? Yeah, no, I think that's very true. I think there is an openness uh, uh, to belief that we haven't seen um, uh, previously. I think also 
Um, if we, we have a site called Purposeful Universe, uh, which is kind of a halfway house uh, kind of a website. It's, it's built toward getting people to see purpose in the universe, getting people to see that that higher power, you know, very likely exists for good scientific reasons. And so we have a lot of uh, uh, professors from Harvard or uh, from other uh, universities that are, you know, make, um, you know, uh, uh, little videos for us. And, uh, the, you know, they're watched truly by millions of people. So, I mean, what, what are the, who are the people watching it? Uh, clearly, they're young people. That's our demographic. Young males uh, um, are the most uh, greatest number, uh, followed by the younger um, uh, women. And, and so forth. So, mm -hmm. so we can pretty much uh, tell who's watching the site, but uh, the young are right. uh, looking at that site, the halfway house site. Mm -hmm. the, the problem is, you know, just getting them to that one place. The reason we put so much emphasis on near-death experiences is because, of course, um, there, you know, when, if, if somebody moves uh, in a near-death experience uh, to a, a heavenly kingdom, oftentimes it is associated uh, not just with a higher power, but one that is Christian or loving or something of that nature. But the Shroud of Turin is really fascinating to young people. It's getting a lot of traction. Mm -hmm. And I think the reason is threefold. First, there's an openness that there wasn't there before. Number two, um, there is also a, um, uh, you know, a lot of new scientific information that is so overwhelming it's difficult to, to, you know, work your way out of it. It's so prolific, uh, you know, the shrouds on the authenticity. And so I think that's becoming a very, very good um, uh, source of, of information for people as well. Mm -hmm. I think also um, the, what the, uh, those surveys are saying is that uh, when people do, like young people turn to religion, you know, you can see those statistics, the depression and anxiety statistics are reversed very, very quickly. In other words, that sense of malaise, that sense of emptiness, that sense of dread that so many of our young people, uh, you know, feel that has been driving mm -hmm. these suicide rates, depression rates, anxiety rates, aggression rates, and mm -hmm. substance abuse rates over, especially during COVID, but for the 10 years prior to COVID, driving them almost to mm -hmm. double um, those, and of course, especially with young women. I mean, it's just overwhelmingly bad news. But then they turn to, um, you know, uh, prayer, especially, and you can see that that's opening them up. But they, you know, there's never going to be that complete thing. That, that what the uh, polls show, what the surveys show, though, prayer helps. But if you really want to move out of the depression, and the anxiety, et cetera, you really do need to go to something like religion, to a source of revelation that's not just in your head, mm -hmm. but to a source of revelation that seems to come from an authority, like a divine cosmic authority outside of oneself. And that would, of course, be where Jesus and the Catholic Church would fit into the picture that you do really mm -hmm. need to get uh, to something like that. That's what really alleviates uh, the depression, the anxiety, et cetera. And people don't realize it because it starts off, the, the kids, you know, they, they do feel the dread and the loneliness, the emptiness, et cetera, the malaise, but they don't know what it's coming from. They don't mm -hmm. associate it with religion, um, you know, or they're 
you know, ignoring of, uh, uh, of religion. What they uh, associate it with is just, you know, I'm, I'm just having a bad day or something. Mm -hmm. But in point of fact, it's a much more uh, pronounced uh, cause. And so if they can really get to that, um, you know, and right. they get that insight, well, wait a minute here. Maybe what I really do need to do is connect to God, but not just connect to God on my terms, right. but to c connect to God on His terms. And then if they figure out the His terms part, then who, which religion? And of course, the evidence for Jesus is overwhelming. The kids love science. They just do. And so you start looking at some of these miracles today. I'm not kidding you. I mean, the Marian miracles themselves and the Guadalupe image is, mm -hmm. is a barn burner, but the Turin image is so significant, significant in conjunction with the face cloth of Oviedo. And then you get also right. uh, to the Eucharistic miracles that happened at Buenos Aires, Tixla, and Sokolka, Poland. And the scientific investigation mm -hmm. there is getting better and better to the point again where you really do have a preponderance of evidence that points uh, to the authenticity of these Eucharist miracles. Because, you know, when you really look at it, how in the world can human technology produce such a fine integration between the substance of the host and the substance of that cardiac tissue growing out of the host that is so refined and so intertwined mm -hmm. that it's literally only a few micron separation on, on the level of the thin filaments of the microfibrils. I mean, if you start looking at that, I mean, it's we, no human technology can produce that. I mean, you can validate that again and, and again uh, in, in the Sokolka Poland uh, host, uh, you know, by transmission mm -hmm. electron screening of several kinds, uh, which show pretty much what I just explained. So all I can tell right. you is, you know, this stuff, you know, it right. speaks to the kids. They well, trust think, science. They trust things that are empirical. How do, you, how do you deal, though? I mean, you deal with it very closely. And you know mm -hmm. the studies better than I do. But certainly, if you look at the number of people mm -hmm. who associate, depending upon what generation, you know, the World War II generation or the mm -hmm. boomers or, you know, the Gen Z or mm -hmm. millennials, et cetera, um, and mm -hmm. Generation X, you know, the idea that you see this incredible jump in the number of people up to 20% now who claim some alphabet, you know, kind of relationship in the sense of LGBTQ plus or minus kind of a thing. Uh, and so you have this kind of thing going on, which obviously seems like a societal contagion rather than anything else. But with that being the case, you got other people who are friends with these people and they might themselves be on a spiritual journey and maybe they're searching for God. But how do they deal with their friends who seem to be, you know, kind of lost? You know, they don't want to be well, intolerant, um, you, you know, know what I mean? Right, but I think, you know, what does a true friend do? Mm -hmm. I mean, a true friend doesn't let someone move into a lifestyle that will lead up to a 20 times increase in suicide rates. Mm -hmm. I mean, if, if you're gonna let somebody go into a, 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 you know, a lifestyle where you, know, you can almost expect uh, you know, almost a third of the population will commit suicide after you know, 10 to 15 years after the sexual reassignment surgery, 
what are we talking about here? That's not what a friend does. Mm -hmm. A friend, you know, look at the mortality rate for all causes with uh, transgenders, right? It, you can see that with, uh, you know, uh, for example, mm -hmm. uh, um, a, um, uh, a, a woman, you know, what we would call a, uh, a transgender woman, that's a man, a biological man mm -hmm. who transitioned to a woman. That person will have a three times higher rate than biological women who are untrans, um, uh, tra uh, translate, uh, <laughs> transitioned, right. and will have a two times higher um, uh, mortality rate than a, a man who is a biological man that has been untransitioned. So you look at those statistics, like doubling and tripling. Mm. Of, of the mortality rate for all causes. And this is not for people who've had a sexual reassignment surgery. It's just for people who have begun gender-affirming therapy. Right. The Dutch group that measured this, um, uh, the uh, Den Hager uh, group that measured it over a 50-year period, tried to drop by multiple ways, tried to drop that mortality rate just a little bit and have been unable to do so over 50 years. Mm -hmm. That means that there's something intrinsic to receiving these hormone blockers or these additional hormones for the opposite mm -hmm. uh, of your biological sex you were born with. If you get these, you basically are going to find that it, it, problems will begin. Right. Physical problems will begin, stress problems will begin, emotional problems will begin, and the mortality rate just for receiving the hormones is going to go up by a factor of three times or two times, depending on you know what uh, what your um, the apples and oranges you're comparing right. to. But the main thing, though, is pretty clearly um, this: there's something horribly unhealthy about this. And that's why the number of detransitioners right. is so high. And now it's not just Great Britain that's reversed its whole policy on gender-affirming right. therapy. It is now Sweden and now Finland, Finland right. has joined yeah. the group. And so all of these people were forerunners. They were the big forerunners of the gender-affirming therapy. They're uh, all reversing course, but the United mm. States is Beating willingly ahead with great fortitude under the auspices of its president and so many others. Right. I think this is just unbelievable, you know, that this is being done. I, right. I, I've said many times, it's medically unethical. I cannot see how doctors can be promoting it. They must know these statistics. They're as public as they can possibly be. Then you tell me, you know, uh, what in the world, you know, they're doing, getting into this well, business except making right. money. Right. Well, you, yeah. you just said it. If you look at those other places, uh, which basically are, have socialized medicine, okay, for whatever, you know, good or bad, yeah. that, that brings in care. But the people working in it don't make a lot of money necessarily. Certainly not the way yeah. someone yeah. can make money in the medical field in the United States. And certainly with big pharma, yeah. and we've seen it post-COVID about the idea of how much pressure or money was put on the table to pressure people to support certain mm -hmm. uh, methodologies of dealing with that particular disease or other diseases at times, yeah. right? Uh, exactly, exactly. So, uh, you know, I, I have to say money has to be a big part of it. I'm, 
I'm sure that it is. I think uh, ideology is a part right. of it too, on the part of some people, um, you know. But I think the the medical profession is not as ideologically moved as you know the government people who are mm. you know promoting this with big chunks of money. Uh, they're the ones that are ideologically moved. But what they're doing is their ideology in this case is just leading to a a host of suicides, a skyrocketing increase in mortality wow. rates, and huge increases in depression and anxiety, um, you know, over right. the course of these people's lifetimes. I mean, what are we talking about? We, we've got to get out of this business, and we can't just say, well, they can detransition. They can't detransition. Right. It's all over once a sexual reassignment surgery has been done and the damage to your physical and emotional system that's been done by receiving right. these hormone blockers they're not good for you you can see that I mean I mean when you got a tripling of mortality rates what are we talking about right. here Absolutely. how can this be good for you you know I mean, so it's just like some something very very strange going right. on here well I think you the know, problem let's is just call a, it right. as it is it, yeah know. well it's not an ideology it's an ideology with the word idiot in the front yeah. of it and that's the problem, trying to figure out how people who are smarter than you are and you look at it and say, how can I see that this is yeah. wrong and you can't? So, like you said, you yeah. got to figure out what is, what's the yeah. blind spot. Another story, just before yeah. we go to our questions, uh, I recently interviewed uh, Mary Everstart on her book, uh, Adam and Eve and the Pill Revisited. I know you know uh -huh. her work. Um, and it was an oh, article yeah. talking about that. She does a great job. And she talks about the church practically alone among all institutions has been harboring profound truths for 2,000 years. Most notably, in this case, the truth that living by the big bad rule book is actually better for human beings than discarding it. She goes on to say, the irony is extraordinary. Pressure has been mounting for a long time now for the Catholic Church to do what most Protestant churches have done, abandon the teachings that prompt the most complaining from the pews. That is, put down the catechism, pick up mm -hmm. the cool kid flag. Yet, even as the call for capitulation grows louder, transforming and deforming Catholic discussion, the evidence thrown out by the world itself points in the opposite direction. Caving to the sexual revolution would cripple the church exactly as it's crippled every other church that's tried it. Absolutely. Why can't the people pushing this see that? Well, um, you know, I, first of all, everything she just said that's what I tried to prove in that book, mm -hmm. The Moral Wisdom of the Catholic Church. The first five chapters of that book are just truly like about 600 secular, secular mm -hmm. studies, not religious studies, that prove exactly what Mary said. The truth about uh, the church's teaching about transgenderism, absolutely, mm -hmm. there will be a gigantic increase in emotional and physical health, uh, not to mention declines in huge suicide rates. Uh, homosexual lifestyle, I don't have to tell you again and again, you know, panic attacks are up five times. Uh, depression rates are up by three times. Anxiety rates are up by 3.5 times. Uh, you know, significant um, uh, psychiatric events uh, are, are up by three times. Mm -hmm. Suicides are 
are up by five to seven times, depending on the figure you're using. But that's in the Netherlands. It's in the Netherlands where there's friendly, uh, you know, uh, you know, appreciation of all this. Wait, hey, wait a minute. You know, you look at what happens to religious life. You start moving into these lifestyles, right? You can expect that you're going to get. Uh, you know, this is a Pew survey uh, that, that I'm using. You know, that that uh, half, uh, twice as many people will, you know, who get into that lifestyle will be, you know, inclined to call themselves um, atheists. Mm -hmm. uh, half the number will be praying. Um, half the number will be attending church services. Half the number will profess some belief in a Bible or some other revealed source of religion, et cetera, et cetera. So you look at these surveys and you just go, there's something wrong with this. I mean, look at pornography. You know, everybody trying to pressure the church and saying it's a victimless sin. Just, you know, quit mm -hmm. being such a prude. But, you know, right. the more you look at pornography, the more depressed you become. Now, that's again, that's a secular survey. And I'm getting this stuff, you know, some of these things, you know, right out of, you know, the archives of general psychiatrists, uh, psychiatry, um, you know, and even the popular journals like uh, Psychology Today, which is not exactly in the Catholic Church's site. I mean, it admits it, you know, pornography creates depression uh, over, over the long term. And then you start looking at what happens to religious life as pornography use increases, it goes down to zero. Once you become a pornography addict, once you basically uh, subscribe to looking at it once a, um, I mean, uh, uh, every day of the week, uh, you will can almost be sure that your level of prayer, your level of church attendance, your level of belief in God, etc., will go down to almost zero. Now, you know, you keep, just keep right. looking at the statistics. It's one big, huge proof right. that the Catholic Church's moral teaching is really, really good, not just for your religious health or your spiritual health, but also for your emotional health, your relational health, and your marital health. I mean, people, we, the church has been preaching, this comes out all through these, these surveys, secular surveys, mm -hmm. cohabitation, even though kids think popularly, this is really good as a test ground for your marriage. The longer you cohabitate, the, great, the more marital dissatisfaction you will have, mm -hmm. the greater the rate of divorce, etc. People think, premarital partners, that's not going to hurt me after I get married. Oh, yeah, it most certainly will. If you start monitoring mm -hmm. the number of premarital partners, um, you know, as an independent variable next to, uh, to um, uh, the uh, uh, number of divorces uh, just within five years of marriage, mm -hmm. you can see that the more premarital partners just go straight up through the thing. So, I mean, if you have zero um, premarital partners, uh, you know, the odds of getting a divorce um, in that population, I get is 4% or something before four, five years. Mm -hmm. Then you start going up, and finally, of course, you have more than uh, nine uh, premarital partners. You can depend on a 35% divorce rate um, uh, before five years is up. You look, I mean, we've got, let's face it, you right. know, the secular surveys indicate, and not only that, it's not just your emotional, spiritual, relational, and marital health. By the by, you'll be happier if right. you live by the big book.
because emotional health mean, translates into less depression, less anxiety, less antisocial aggressivity, less suicides, less suicidal contemplation, less substance abuse. What does that mean? I'm a happier camper. Mm -hmm. I'm just a happier person. I'm a more peaceful person, a more stable person. People will go, Spitzer, you're not stable. Just trust me on this. But really, you're a, a happier person, etc. So the, the idea is the church has been right, and, it, and that's because the church is merely interpreting Jesus Christ according mm -hmm. to the Holy Spirit that, it ha that right. she has been given. And so, of course, you can expect that this would be the right. case. We have to just stop trying to say, let's be nice and supportive of people. If we don't say to our kids, go ahead, dear, I know you really want to play in the street. I don't want to be mean and say no. Why don't we just stop this and just say, please, don't play in the street. Mm -hmm. Please don't go into this lifestyle that's going to get you into a 20 times increase in suicide rates or whatever the case, whatever the, the lifestyle is. Please just don't do it. Just stay away from it. Just stick with, uh, you know, what Jesus has asked us. You know, you don't have to have, uh, you know, um, uh, sex either in order uh, to be fulfilled as a human person. There are very good studies which show that people who have deep, good, reciprocal friendships grounded in, um, you know, uh, good uh, intimacy with mm -hmm. one another and good, uh, you know, um, religious uh, similarity and common cause, they are just as happy as people that have uh, sexual relationships, uh, um, you know, as well. So, I mean, let's, you know, you can be fulfilled mm -hmm. in love and friendship, um, you know, uh, e even without sexual. Otherwise, of course, my right. own vocation would, would be uh, ridiculous. Right. So, um, you know, at the end of the day, well, God knew what right. he was doing right, when exactly. he created us. Right. And, and, yeah. Right. And the sacramental nature of marriage and and that idea that you're making that commitment and the fact that it is 100%, yeah. 100%. It's not 50-50. We live in a world where right. everybody's trying to hedge their bets, you know. Uh, well, I don't want to do too much because yeah. I might be taken advantage of. So, <laughs> you know, and maybe I'm missing out on something. Rather than having that, yeah, you know, what exactly. the John Paul II said about self-donation, right? Yeah. yeah, exactly, exactly. So, no, I'm with you 100%. Right, absolutely. Good, because I want you to stay there because we're going to take a break uh, before we get into any of these questions. Uh, but we've got a lot of questions to get to, so stay with us right here on Father Spitzer's Universe, okay? And we'll be back momentarily. Thanks. And we do appreciate you staying right there with us here in Father Spitzer's universe. Our topic, the Holy Eucharist, we'll get to that momentarily once we turn back to Father and get a couple more questions in there. All right, next up, Father, are you ready? Uh, dear Father Spitzer, yes. science and faith should not contradict. How do I reconcile the fact that there was death, sickness, violence, and destruction long before our first insult parents, Adam and Eve? 
Science proves life and death was occurring for millions of years before the existence of modern man, but the Bible says there was no death until the original sin of our first parents. Joni. Yeah, Jody, you are absolutely correct. And of course, um, you have to take a look at that uh, through the literary genre uh, through which that was being written. And first of all, you are correct about the fact that, uh, yes, death on the earth, why that uh, goes back 3.9 billion years. And we have remnants of microorganisms uh, that died. Um, uh, well, the earth is only 4.6 uh, billion years old, so that's point seven um, uh, billion years after the uh, earth was formed. So we do have death already back there and suffering. Uh, suffering occurred uh, on the earth uh, probably with the first cartilaginous fish. Uh, that would be somewhere in the neighborhood of about uh, uh, you know, 600 million, 570 million years ago. So um, you know, when you're thinking about it, uh, uh, you're absolutely right. How do you explain that? Well, we, you know, when we interpret the scriptures, um, remember, you, you can't, you know, you have to interpret the scriptures. Some of the scriptures are meant literally. Some of the scriptures are, are meant metaphorically. And so, well, how would you know the difference uh, between the one and the other? Well, as Cardinal Ratzinger, you know, uh, explained a long time ago, the, the church is the only way you can know definitively uh, which one is to be held. But the Catholic Church, of course, would not say that physical um, death and physical pain first occurred. The Catholic Church has another interpretation. Put that on the back burner for just a moment. Mm -hmm. I do want to explain a statement that was made by Pope Pius XII uh, first. So Pope Pius XII says in Divino Aflante Spiritu, I think that was in 1942, he says, you know, um, when scripture was written, the biblical author's intention and God's intention in inspiring the core message of the scriptures is to give sacred truths necessary for salvation. Mm. He didn't, the biblical, and this is the quote that's important from Pope Pius XII, God was not inspiring the, uh, the, the biblical author to give good mathematical, empirical, scientifically based uh, explanations and descriptions of the physical universe. Mm -hmm. That wasn't the purpose of God's um, uh, inspiration of the biblical author. So we are free to uh, modify our interpretations of that. That's not part of scriptural inerrancy, and that is made very clear by Pope Pius XII. Now let's return to what did the Catholic Church then wind up teaching in the catechism, for example. Mm -hmm. So let's just take the death part of it uh, for a moment. So the ca uh, catechism of the Catholic Church says that we are, you know, uh, you know, it's what comes into the world is this sort of, uh, I forget the exact word used in the catechism, but it's like the awareness, the self-awareness of death which causes us this great dread, right? And everybody experiences a dread of death. Nobody except, you know, a psychopath wants to die in a hurry. So the idea, you know, of the dread of death, that was not in the world um, until original sin came along. And, uh, you know, the Catholic Church, you know, if I were, uh, you know, um, interpreting here, um, the document on, on original sin, the main thing is that when we were in our original state, when we were first created, our vision of God 
was very, very clear. In other words, the, my, you know, Adam and Eve would have had a clear sense of conscience, uh, you know, the awareness of what was morally obligatory and not by their feelings of guilt, their feelings of alienation versus, on the other hand, their feelings of nobility, etc. So the idea then is, after the original sin, mm -hmm. that clarity is lost, but not, says the church, not completely. So today, you know, I mean, I guess the best way of describing it is, you know, we're not Calvinists in the Catholic Church. Mm -hmm. So we basically believe that human beings, even after the fall, after the original sin, are 51% good, at least that. So we're still fundamentally good beings. We haven't lost it all. And of course we still have an awareness of God that's looking through a glass darkly, let's call it that, uh, to borrow the words of Scripture there, and just say that, yes, we, we, uh, we don't have a perfect clarity uh, in our conscience, and we don't have, you know, that responsiveness in our own will to following, um, you know, the, uh, the clearly presented will of God in our conscience. So we got right. uh, hit by what we might call concupiscence, a weakening of our nature, a weakening of our will, a weakening of the clarity of our vision uh, of God, and that's what causes death, right, according to the Catechism of the Catholic Church, right, to be such a, a thing of dread, mm -hmm. to be an oppressive kind of thing. The same thing with suffering. Uh, you'll notice that, of course, there was physical pain in the world since, as I said, the time of cartilaginous fish. But the, the main thing, though, is that when you, um, you know, when human beings, after the fall, start looking at suffering and they don't have the trust in God, they don't have the vision in God that they had mm -hmm. uh, in their original state. And in their fallen state with concupiscence, they have a, a, you know, looking through a glass darkly again. Right. And so the idea is, well, wait, what happened? I get worried about suffering. And of course, we all have friends who, you know, they worry, 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 mm -hmm. worry, worry, you know, and, uh, and of course, when you're starting to worry and your self-consciousness and so forth, uh, okay, I'm going blind, uh, tomorrow I'm going to get blinder and so forth. At some point, you have to say, Lord, I put my trust in you. You guide me. You help me. I don't, you know, I'm going to keep going blind and I don't like it, but I'm trusting you. Maybe right. I can do something significant 20 years after the, or, you know, five years after the blindness, 10 years uh, or more after the blindness. And of course, I am blind and mm -hmm. I'm still being able to do things. I trusted in God. But suffering can be oppressive, is what the church wants to say. Right. And that's what came into the world when our vision of God and our vision of our sense of conscience became very, very okay. obscured. Let, let's slide in one last question before we get to the topic of the Eucharist. And uh, it says, sure. Dear Father Spitzer, it is, a, it, it is a dogma of the Catholic Church that if a person dies in mortal sin, they go to hell forever. This is serious business for every person. Should I use this dogma to gently evangelize my family and friends that are probably in mortal sin? Brian. Well, Brian, you, you have to, now, I'm, first of all, uh, should people know this doctrine? Yes, but you also have to teach the full doctrine that mortal sin requires three conditions be met. Grave matter, of course, 
The second is sufficient reflection or knowledge. And the third is full consent of the will, no impediments to the free use of the will. So it's not just necessarily the commission of the act. It has to be the commission of an act without um, impediments to the free use of the will, which is, you know, that's a, you know, the church, you know, that's, that's a pretty... Uh, um, you know, a, a good step there. Now, so the, the main thing is if you present that doctrine correctly uh, to your relatives, that might be a good thing. But I caution you on two levels if you're going to go that route. When you start talking about mortal sin and saying you're in a state of mortal sin, you, you can't make that determination, you know, because you don't know whether a person did have sufficient freedom, no impediments to freedom, and sufficient knowledge. You just don't know. It's not up to us to judge. So I would always avoid saying, you are in a, I know that you are in a state of mortal sin. It's hard enough for us to know. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and of course, when, when we as believers know, we go to confession, and that takes care of that. But you can sort of say, well, if there's a po you could speak in conditionals. If there's a possibility that you may be in a state of moral sin, you really ought to think about confession right. because, of course, y your soul is in jeopardy. So you could say something like that, but I would not personalize it at all. And, you know, if you, if you get on the level of personalizing it, you're, it's going to look like you're trying to get the moral high road right. on these folks, right? And you do that, and that's it. You're written off. There's never going to be anybody talking to you again. So you have to be very, very careful about that. You have to find a really abstract kind of rhetoric, you know, and just say, hey, theoretically, if this, then that, you know, and, and so forth and so on. Yeah. And there has you got to get an intro. You, you absolutely, you, you just can't bring it up. Right. In other words, there has to be a lead-in that somebody else says, and then you can say, well, you know, when you think about that, you know, and then you could bring up, you know, well, right. gosh, if, if you really were in a state of moral sin with sufficient relationship, right. full consent, well, as you, you know, right. the likelihood of going to hell is, is there, you probably would, should think about going to confession right. or something of that or nature. Least, Get uh, back in touch with Christ yeah. and the church. May, may, may yeah. focus on the actions the person maybe is displaying and focus yeah. on, well, do you think that's such a great thing yeah. that you're doing that? And yeah, have you thought about what that yeah. means, not only physically, but maybe spiritually in your life so, or something like that? Yeah. You know. Well, you know, I, I know some people have brought up the hell thing and it has helped their relatives, but I also know other people where that has just led those other people in the other direction with great force. Right. In other words, they run, run away from you and the church, and so it becomes, you know, uh, Spitzer's problem or something, you know. Right. He, you know, he thinks he's the prophet or something. Right, and that's so you, why. So you really have to do this gingerly, right. gingerly. Right, why, why the church yeah. is not identifying who's in hell. Uh, you, in the Eucharistic... Uh, <laughs> that's true. In the Eucharistic yeah. uh, book, on the bottom of the page, under the five Eucharistic graces, you talk about what did Jesus intend this total gift of himself to be in the Eucharist? Spiritual peace, forgiveness slash healing, transformation in his image, unity within the mystical yeah. body, an everlasting life. Mm -hmm. Now, unity seems to mm -hmm. be a major concern these days, isn't it? Oh, well, well, that, well it is a, uh, a major concern, but uh, I would just say Jesus has promised us uh, this unity 
uh, of the communion of saints. And it's a really, it's a felt unity. And it's almost as if we have these divine friends out there. I mean, yes, we're in unity with Christ, but we're in unity with all of Christ's friends as well through the Holy Eucharist. In other words, it's like I get to be in touch with St. Teresa of Avila and St. John Henry Newman and St. Ignatius of Loyola and St. Thomas of Aquinas and all these people. I mean, it's almost like these divine friends are there and they have the capacity uh, to, to influence me. And uh, I, I do feel that sense of it. Uh, oftentimes when I am at Mass after communion, I do feel this sense of, you know, almost being unified with this mystical church throughout the ages. You know, it's almost like I'm being recessed back uh, into, you know, the, the real fonts of holiness uh, in the past and the present. And, and uh, that, that is really a, it's a, a wonderful thing. And, and frankly, um, I, you know, I, when my little niece was young, you know, um, I, I just remember, well, I, you know, I got this Christmas story. I've told it before a couple of years ago anyway uh, on the program, you know, where I was going to midnight mass or, or going to mass with my mom, mm -hmm. you know, and, uh, and uh, you know, I just said, you know, mom, I'm, I'm really happy, you know, and, uh, and mom goes, oh, you know, did you get all the presents you wanted at Christmas? I said, well, the presents were great, but no, it wasn't that. She goes, oh, well, maybe it was your family, and you're so happy to be here. Mm -hmm. I said, Mom, we have a great family, but that's not it. So she goes, okay, and uh, she finally thinks about it. She goes, well, maybe it, it, it's the joy of the whole communion of saints coursing through your veins wow. on this Christmas Eve. And I thought about it, and I go, yeah, I think that's wow. it. I, it's their joy mm -hmm. that I, you know, am experiencing in me. And, and, you know, it was no accident that here I am going to Mass and the very anticipation of this on Christmas, it's almost as if I had that joy in me. I mean, sometimes, you know, how it, you're going to Easter Mass or you just wake up at Easter mm -hmm. and there's, I don't know, the smell of the lilies in the air, at least in Hawaii there was. But anyway, the main thing is you, you, uh, you get up on that Easter and there's, there's a categorically different ethos uh, as it were, uh, you know, uh, you, you know, there's something that I feel, mm -hmm. some kind of particular goodness, holiness, joy, all wrapped up in, into one. As I, you know, as I'm kind of preparing for my Easter mass, or even when I was a little kid, you know, just waking up on Easter, I could feel uh, that sense of of joy and and uh, goodness. So anyway, uh, wow. all I could say is that's the kind of unity I'm talking about. And it really is right. quite palpable, and I have felt it many, many times in, in my own life. And you kind of you kind of break it out into different sections of the book, and you talk the, the Lamb of God section, and you talk about the church always mm -hmm. is interested in proclaiming the grace of forgiveness and healing during the liturgy. You say the priest yeah. here in the uh, Behold, he who takes away the sins of the world. You say the priest here clearly associates the host with the one who takes away the sins of the world. This is not a meal in a general sense. It also pertains to the individuals who are to receive communion. Go on to say, happy are we who are called to his supper. Uh, but you then also say, Lord, yeah. I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof, but only so that it were not, I shall be healed. And ultimately, how does this square, as you say, with Paul's admonition not to receive the Eucharist unworthily? How do you put those together? 
Yeah, well, basically, you, uh, the church has reconciled it by doing this. Uh, basically, if you are in a state of mortal sin, you should not receive Holy Communion until you have been to confession. Mm -hmm. That's how the church says it. However, if you are in a state of venial sin alone, then um, absolutely your venial sins are forgiven by receiving Holy Communion. And so uh, uh, is that a good thing? It's an absolutely good thing. It breaks, you know, even venial sins, you know, the evil spirit gets a, a grip on you. And so, you know, if you're receiving every day, you're breaking that grip of the evil spirit every single day. And if you're receiving worthily and sincerely, I'm telling you, it's breaking the grip. And it even, you know, if you compliment it with some prayer, like just to say a rosary, just go to EWTN and, and bring up the rosary on your radio and or listen to the... Um, rosary on television and just say the mm -hmm. rosary with the television even. I mean, I'm telling you, that prayer combined with the Eucharist, a worthily mm -hmm. reception, uh, I mean, it's not just forgiving your sins. It really is going to lead to transformation. Right. It's going to lead to holiness. And it's going to lead with a break with um, uh, the darkness of the evil spirit. It's very, very good for you. No right. question about it. Yeah, you jump in. You said, how might we say that the Holy Eucharist actually forgives our sins. And then you quote the catechism, the body of Christ we receive in Holy Communion is given up for us, the blood we drink shed for the forgiveness of sins. For this reason, the Eucharist cannot unite us to Christ without the same cleansing, time cleansing us from past sins and preserving us from future sins. So it's not only, in a sense, that forgiveness of sins, but it's a certain amount of grace to hopefully overcome that sin the next time, right? Well, that's right, because there's accompanying graces, not just for the forgiveness or absolution of the sin mm -hmm. that's in the Eucharist, but also uh, you get this, you know, ability to turn your life around, right? So if we're worthily receiving it and we're praying, uh, you know, even if we're praying the rosary with the, the television or the radio or whatever it may be, that prayer, all in its complementarity, there are graces coming, and that grace is getting you on a stronger and stronger level or course where you can actually turn to God without feeling like you want to run away. You know how it is with prayer sometimes when you're just getting started on prayer, you know, sometimes you feel like, ah, you know, I don't want to pray, uh, you know, and you, you want to want run away. But after you've been receiving the Eucharist for a while, and, and you've been also trying, you know, just maybe even just praying the rosary, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Then you can move uh, a, a little bit more assiduously into that prayer of quiet, you know, where, uh, for example, you know, when St. Teresa of Avila, she's talking about sort of the precursor condition of uh, the prayer of quiet, and she, she's talking about, um, you know, contemplating the passion of Jesus. And you don't have to be fancy here, and you don't have to be St. Teresa or somebody like that, right? You just are contemplating the passion of Jesus, and in, in just, uh, uh, St. Teresa says, if you can, then she says, gaze, simply gaze at he who is gazing at you. Mm -hmm. Keep him company. Pray to him, talk with him, and humble yourself with him in sheer delight, remembering that it is a privilege even to be near him. If we can just even get near that state, touch that state, 
of just, you know, uh, being, you know, uh, with him and just, um, uh, you know, humbling ourselves in delight, as she calls it, or just, um, you know, talking with him or just, you know, praying to him mm -hmm. uh, or gazing at him, simply gazing at him. If we can just approach that state, honestly, it, it's prayer becomes utterly transformative. You're not going to question anymore whether, you know, God is out there. He's out there, and you know He's out there when you're gazing at Him, gazing at you. I mean, you, you know. I mean, you just always, but you're, you're just a psychotic, you know. You're, you just always talk yourself into believing all of these things. And, and of course, my answer is, until you have tried it in sincerity of faith, you have no idea what you're talking about. You, you're just like Bob Spitzer trying to give football uh, tips uh, to a, a pro football player. You know, you, you just you don't know what you're talking about. Once you experience Christ gazing back at you, or the Blessed Virgin Mary gazing back at you, mm -hmm. uh, or the Holy Spirit helping you, you're not going to you know, prayer becomes easier and easier. And as the prayer becomes easier and easier, it becomes easier to resist sin. And as it becomes easier to resist sin, the prayer again becomes a little easier. The recognition of the gaze of the beloved, as St. Teresa would say, you get to it very quickly and or marry the beloved, whatever the case may be. And so, of course, that makes things you know, easier to resist sin. You don't want to disappoint um, the the divine ones. And so it's, uh, uh, as I said, there's something about that Holy Eucharist, but the accompanying prayer too is very important. And then the moral conversion begins to happen. So Eucharist, prayer, moral conversion, Eucharist, prayer, right? It builds on each mm. other, gets easier, easier more facility. After a while, it's not just the fact that you know that God is helping you and is out there, uh, but you know, you can also uh, uh, be very sure uh, that the Lord is um, uh, with you, helping you in your moral conversion, and of course, that He loves you, right. that He absolutely loves you. I by no means uh, am anybody deserving of God's love. Uh, you know, I, I have my moments of definitive impatience and arrogance and everything else under the sun. Yet, it, I just marvel at the fact that when I'm gazing at him, gazing at me, I know he loves me. Mm -hmm. I know the Blessed Virgin Mary loves me. Everything inside my rational mind wants to say, oh, she couldn't possibly love an arrogant sot like you. But in point of fact, she does. Mm -hmm. And I know it. And that comes from prayer. It comes from the Holy Eucharist and the combination of the two. Right, absolutely. And uh, we've just about a minute and a half to go before we've got to head out oh. the door. So I don't want to get into the next question, but yeah. we can think about this for next week where with respect to the third gift you lay out here, the transformation in the Lord's heart, Jesus says, he who eats my flesh and drinks yeah. my blood abides in me and I in him. And the question is, the idea of yep. one person living in another is the highest possible form yeah. of intimacy, far exceeding living with another. Jesus intended that yeah. we enter into this highest possible intimate relationship with him by receiving him in his body and blood, and that is the Holy Eucharist, something for us to maybe think about uh, and maybe we can pick yep. up uh, on this topic the next time we get together. But Father, if you'd like to give us Absolutely. your blessing on the way out the door, that'd be great. 
And may the Lord bless all of you and send down his Holy Spirit upon you to inspire you that you might know in your heart of hearts, might know with every form of conviction his love for you, his guidance of you, and his desire to bring you into the fullness of his love and light and joy forever. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. Thank you so much. A pleasure as always, Father Spitzer. We shall see you next week. Be well. We'll hopefully see all of you as well. Father Spitzer's books and DVDs naturally are available through our EWTN religious catalog, EWTNRC.com. As I said, we'll continue talking about the Holy Eucharist next time. Bookmark uh, this weekend, a very popular priest, Father John Ricardo, two books, Learning to Trust from Mary and Rescue, the Unexpected and Extraordinary News of the Gospel. That's weekend on Bookmark. Check that out. And also we've got a Holy Mass on the Feast of the English Martyrs from Walsingham, England. That's, uh, that's where our setup is in England. It's at that shrine Thursday, for May 4th at 1130 a.m. Eastern Time. Thursday, May 4th at 1130 a.m. Eastern Time from Walsingham in England. I'm Doug Keck. Thank you so much for joining us. We shall next time see you when we once more re-enter Father Spitzer's universe. Hope to see you then.